Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. We are rocking and rolling again. It's May 2021. America's back. The world is back. And we're finally having a little bit of fun. Last week, uh, we had a lot of fun, actually. Uh, Ron Brownstein was on the show with a wonderful new book, Rock Me on the Water, uh, a nostalgic book which suggests that 1974 represents the, the apioth the apotheosis of culture, certainly in the United States and California, in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, Brownstein argues 1974 represents this, this magical moment where the 60s uh, materialized into the 70s and all the best things about the 60s in terms of its creativity were born out. Um, one of the people I know Brownstein uh, spoke to in, in some depth for this book was my guest on the show today, another old friend, uh, John Taplin. Uh, he has a new book out, The Magic Years, very much in the spirit of Brownstein's book. Uh, Taplin's book, The Magic Years, is uh, has the subtitle Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. Um, John, welcome back. Uh, you're looking as youthful as ever. Are you ever going <laughs> to grow up? <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Uh, I hope not. Were you gifted the eternal, um, eternal <laughs> youth at some point in the 1960s when, as an 18-year-old, you, you were working backstage at the Newport Folk Festival when you saw uh, Dylan's uh, famous shift from acoustic to electric? What, what, how do you keep so young, John? <laughs> I don't know. I, I just keep open to change, you know, and, and I also swim a lot. <laughs> That might have something to do with it. Well, uh, you, you swim a lot in, uh, in the sea of culture. This is a book <laughs> which begins with two interesting quotes, one from Herbert Marcuse, the Frankfurt School crit uh, cultural Marxist, and the other from Bruce Springsteen, who is anything but a Marxist or a, cultural, uh, or, or a Frankfurt School theorist. Uh, both quotes are about the value, the importance of creativity, the Marcuse quote says, in its refusal to accept as final the limitations imposed upon freedom and happiness by society, in its refusal to forget what can be, lies the critical function of the artist. And Springsteen wrote, show a little faith, there's magic in the night. Uh, John, is this book, The Magic Years, um, is it about magic, the magic of creativity? It is, but it's also about how the magic of creativity sometimes becomes a vanguard in political thinking as well. So it starts in the early 60s with uh, Bob Dylan and Joan Baez and Odetta and a few other artists really taking the part of the civil rights movement and writing music, what were called protest songs, uh, to support that movement. Uh, and spending time, uh, you know, really uh, working in the movement itself. I mean, Bob Dylan went down to Greenwood, Mississippi uh, as a uh, uh, organizer to help 
you know, with his singing to help people register to vote. And, and you know, this was a place where a year later, um, Andrew Goodman and, and Cheney uh, and Schwerner were killed by the Ku Klux Klan. So it wasn't uh, without danger. And, and then that culminates in the march on Washington in 63, where Dylan sang, uh, Baez sang, Peter Paul and Mary sang, Odetta sang, and and then moves into a movement which eventually the pol politicians caught up with the artists. So, I mean, the book is about the culture a lot, but it's also how the culture feeds the political sociology of, of the country. Yeah, and you quote Peter Drucker on this, the, the business analyst, another... Uh, I, I sort of the founder of another Viennese school, not the Frankfurt School. Uh, Dr Drucker famously said, and I'm uh, quoting you here, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, and, then, and, and then you write, this book is about the sense of possibility that allows culture to be its most vital and powerful, even in difficult times. It's a very personal book, John. It's about you. It's about uh, a, a very privileged young man from... Uh, a wealthy Cleveland family. Your father was a, a very successful lawyer who went from uh, an exclusive uh, boarding school in New England to managing Bob Dylan. Uh, what has your life taught you about the importance of culture? Well, I believe that culture is the, the thing that drives society completely. And I think when culture is vital and when culture is optimistic, um, society follows. And when culture becomes nihilistic and dark, um, society follows. I mean, if you think about the culture of the United States after 9-11, you know, and just look at the television universe, I would say that you would look at shows like the wire sopranos mad men breaking bad uh succession game of thrones they all have one thing in common which is they're all about anti-heroes in other words the bad guy whether he's a meth dealer or he's a, a gangster or he's a moralless advertising man uh, are all the people that you're supposed to be rooting for. If you look at a show like Succession, which is ostensibly about the Murdoch family, mm. I mean, these are people you wouldn't want to spend an hour with, and yet you spend hour after hour with them on TV. And so, of course- yeah, But John, you're, 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 you're conveniently avoiding my question. My question wasn't about the culture, it's about you. Your life is one in which you've lived in sync with some of the most amazing cultural events of the last 50 or 60 years. You were there when Dylan went electric. You were there uh, with the band in Los Angeles in 1969. You were there with Dylan and the Hawks. Uh, you were there with the Rolling Stones and, and George Harrison for the concert for Bangladesh. You were there with Scorsese for Mean Streets. You were there for the last waltz. Um, my sense from the book is that your happiness is very much bound up. Your sunniness, the fact that you look so young all the time, is bound up with your 
intimacy with culture. The darkest moments in the book are when you, and, and you seem to suggest that it was a mistake to go into uh, banking. Um, uh, and, and in fact, that resulted in the breakup of your marriage and a, and a, and a nervous breakdown. Is your personal... Um, is your personal happiness bound up, do you think, uh, in, with culture, with your intimacy to culture? Yeah, I think that's, that's a pretty good judgment. Uh, I think for me, I was constantly feeling that I was in a stream and it wasn't that I was necessarily changing events but that I was open to the change of events. And that, for instance, when after the bon concert for Bangladesh, I realized that most of the artists that I wanted to work for either were having drug problems or just didn't want to be on the road or, you know, were just gone. And so I just thought, well, maybe I can make movies. You know, it can't be that hard. I, I produced 150 <laughs> concerts. And, you know, you know I was, it's hard. You know that. Uh, yeah, but I was naive. You know Andrew, right. I was very naive. I, well, you I had a, only the naive who win, John. Is yeah, that what maybe, it requires? Maybe, to, maybe that's you know, you went it. from you, you went from managing Dylan to, to working with Scorsese and vendors. I mean, yeah. it's, the, it's the fantasy of most young, thoughtful intellectuals. Let me make it clear. I was a tour manager for Bob Dylan at the Isle of Wight. I, I did not manage Bob Dylan. Albert Grossman managed Bob Dylan. But what the point right. was... Here we, that, have, uh, have, here we have the famous Grossman with the even more famous Dylan. Right. That was a very classic moment when, when Bob just spontaneously decided that he would play electric music at the Newport Folk Festival. I love this photo from the book, John. This seems to sort of summarize your glamour as well. You could have been a rock star. You were tall enough and good looking enough. Why didn't you turn out to be the rock star? Because I was not a good guitar player. I was surrounded <laughs> by people who were brilliant guitar players. And I was an average rhythm guitar player. I Tell was... me about this photo. For people watching, you don't get to see. Okay, so, so you should watch. Um, this is a remarkable photo of... Uh, well, talk me through it, John. This is uh, the first concert on uh, what was called Tour 74. So this is Bob Dylan and the band coming into an arena in Chicago, which was going to be the very first concert of that long concert tour. And, of course, this was the first time that Bob returned to the stage after – you know, really since 1966, he had, he did come with us out on the road sometimes in 1969. And of course we did do the, the Isle of Wight music festival uh, in 1969, Bob and the band, but this was the first full blown tour for Bob and the band. And if you were, uh, yeah, if you were a little shorter, uh, John, we might rename you Zelig. You were there and everything <laughs> happened. And that was funny. Uh, in the Brownstein book, Rock Me on the Water in 1974, he writes a little bit about Dylan. 
And he says that Los Angeles was the center of the musical universe and talks about all the films, Chinatown, um, Shampoo, uh, Jack Nicholson, Warren Beatty, blah, blah. But I think he makes a fundamental error, actually, when it comes to music. Because in 74, the Bob Dylan who is photographed in this remarkable photo, uh, this remarkable image, the Taplin and, and Dylan, he came out with his greatest album, I think, of his life, the most revealing, Blood on the Tracks. And, of course, it was recorded in New York and Minnesota. Um, when you look back at all Dylan's achievements, does how, where does Blood on the Tracks stand? And that's a very biased question from me because I'm obsessed with that album. I have been for about 40 years. I, I think it's up there. I think it's up there with uh, Blonde on Blonde. I think it's up there with maybe Highway 61. Uh, it's certainly of the the second wave of Bob's work. It's it's probably the greatest piece of work that he did. And you know, I mean, the thing about Dylan is his constant ability to reinvent himself is is just astonishing. You know, you think about there are a kind of couple of theories of how artists evolve and you know there's there's some theories that like Cezanne it takes a whole lifetime to finally figure out what you're supposed to do and and your greatest work is in your late age and then there's some like Picasso and I would argue Dylan who find something really early really young but then they continually keep changing it and they continually keep renewing themselves and it's a different kind of process. And and Dylan uh, is like Picasso in that sense, in the sense that he constantly was able to rethink what it was that his role was in the society. And um, so in that sense, he's uh, sui generis. He's unique. Yeah. And he continues to do it. Um, and perhaps it has something to do with being or trying to be forever young. Here we have an image of Dylan and Springsteen performing forever young uh, for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But do you think this obsession with youth and youthfulness in all seriousness, John, do you think it's been rather unfortunate for later generations? I had Jill Filipovich, um, one of the great critics of the boomer generation, of our generation on the show recently, uh, talking about boomers sharing their wealth. Uh, and yesterday I had a guy on the show talking about why it's important to remain young, to be creative. Um, do you think that we've cornered, or you and Dylan have cornered the market in youthfulness, that you haven't grown up? One of the things that struck me about the book is in your description of your father, uh, a very old school lawyer, um, he looked different from you as a young man. You don't look different from your kids. I don't look different from my kids. Right. Um, have we lost the ability to grow old? I don't think so. I, I, I don't think anybody would think that Bob wasn't approaching his 80th birthday. Uh, there's no, I mean, just- well, his last album is actually, if anything, it, it rivals blood on the tracks. Right. And, and, you know, the, the ability to do a 20-minute song about the JFK assassination is, like, astonishing. So, I mean, 
Just because you're growing old physically doesn't mean you have to stop creating. And so, I mean, maybe that's Bob's secret sauce is that he continues to find ways to kind of rethink what, what he does. But I don't think he's pretending that he's a spring chicken. He's not jumping around the sage. Uh, and, and so I'm not sure that there isn't some kind of beauty in the fact that the boomer generation uh, is kind of willing to take a back seat now to what has to happen next, you know, if you well, think about- Well, that's all very well, but the younger generation can't take the front seat anymore. There was this excellent piece by Simon Cooper in the FT last week about how the middle class became downwardly mobile. All our kids, or not all of our kids, but many of our kids are living in our houses because they can't afford their own homes. Not only have we cornered the market in, in age, in youthfulness, but also in economic terms. Well, this could be fixed. And it does seem to me that Biden is trying to uh, attack that in some ways. I mean, just just think about taking on the estate tax. Uh, you know, if you started taxing people who are handing down $200 million to their kids, uh, you know, you might find a little bit more uh, equality in, in terms of incomes 10 years down the way. Uh, I mean, I... I I think obviously we have lived for 25 years, 30 years under a kind of cloud of conservative economics that have been accepted even by the Bill Clintons and the Barack Obamas of the world. And so, you know, we haven't really attacked this notion of income inequality. And I, I talk about that quite extensively in the book that, yeah. you know, people uh, who used to be able to have upwardly mobile, and now they're stuck with so much student debt that they can't even get out from under it. But these things can be changed. And that just means we need a political change to come first. But first thing is people have got to begin to become politically engaged again, which is why I go back to my earlier point about the culture. Right. But you say, uh, as, as, as just to quote again, you say that Drucker famously said, culture eats stretchy for breakfast. And that's the, the argument in the book that culture leads politics. But um, we had our friend Kurt Anderson on the show actually 10 years ago talking about how everything hasn't changed for 30 years. We're still wearing the same clothes, listening to the same music. There haven't been any major cultural events, really, since you hung up your hat with the last waltz. Uh, so does that mean that nothing really has changed broadly? Well, let's give it time. I mean, we only got rid of Trump a few months ago, you know? I mean, and, and, and getting rid of Trump was like canceling a, tel a bad television show. It's going to take a while for the next new season's plans to come on the air. And, and here's the deal. Angus Deaton, who's a great economist. At yeah, Princeton, he's been on the show too. Has, has noted that the number of deaths, what he called deaths of despair, which are people killing themselves from overdoses or drinking themselves to death 
or shooting themselves in the head, is at an all-time high in history of America. So why is that? Well, if the culture and the news media and everybody constantly gives you the impression that the fix is in, you mentioned Chinatown, so forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown. There's nothing you can do. The bad guys are going to win. If that's the, the message that's constantly being put out to you, no wonder people say, well, maybe we'll let this clown Trump in and he'll clean up the, the swamp. But of course, that was a lie because he was a swamp creature. But the point is, people are confused and people are depressed. And the, the culture of the early 60s was incredibly positive. I have a dream. We shall overcome. Yeah, and you, 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 you say are about that in the, the end of the book. You quote MLK. What would a, a book be these days if, if MLK wasn't quoted at the end about uh, thinking more optimistically? MLK says, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice, and justice is at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. You also say, John, in the book that the history of America is filled with periods of upheaval like the ones we're experiencing today, from 1850 to 1865, from 1962 to uh, 1970. Why is today then a return to the 1960s, given that we don't have the, the radical cultural vehicle? Uh, the Bob Dylan and the Albert Grossman okay, and the Newport maybe, maybe that's coming. So just think about 1961. Okay, in 1961, the big hits on the radio were Frankie Avalon, Fabian, Annette Funicello. I mean, just bad pop crap. And then this little movement called folk music started getting, it never was on the radio. Nobody ever heard of Bob Dylan. When when my brother first brought home Bob Dylan's first album, I went down to the record store to try and get my own copy. They'd never heard of him. So, I mean, the point was... Well, you were this, living in Cleveland. I was living in Cleveland. But <laughs> this is underground. Bob Dylan's first album sold 4,000 copies. So the point is that I, I go to a thing called the Americana Music Association... It's called Americana Fest in Nashville every September. And it's it's like the new folk music. It's all roots music. So some of it's bluegrass, some of it's country, some of it's kind of rockabilly, some of it is blues. But it's all, it's Mavis Staples and Rhiannon Giddens. It is Brandy Carlisle and, uh, you know, Jackson Brown. And it's all... Kind of yeah, and Ron, uh, and and of course, uh, Ron's book um, uh, "Rock Me on the Water" uh, is uh, a Jackson Brown song. So, but but the, uh, isn't that still music for old people, John? No, it's very young audience. You you. The point is that you go there and you realize that there's a whole new thing happening, and it's not Billie Eilish, you know, singing about Xanax. It's it's not this nervous, nihilistic music that Little Peep and, you know, a lot of the hip-hop is doing. It's, it's very hopeful, uplifting music. 
Well, and but so the new thing that, uh, and and as you and I both particularly know, the the really the new new thing is the internet. You write about it in the book. You say you're a heart, uh, a humanist at heart. Um, I totally believe you write that technology can help us escape the coming anarchy. But you're also one of Silicon Valley's leading critics. Your book "Move Fast and Break Things" was one of the most incisive and and radical critiques of Facebook and Google. Uh, this young generation, what they have, which we didn't have, or you didn't have in 1961, was their iPhone, was t- was tick uh, TikTok, was Facebook, was Twitter. Is that the curse or the solution, or both? It's a little bit of both. I'd say right now it's more of a curse than a solution. Uh, if if you think about this morning in the newspaper, they said, "Well, we're we're giving up on herd immunity." Uh, in America. And why is that? That is because there is a good 35% of the people who are just convinced that getting vaccinated is Bill Gates trying to put a microchip in your arm. Um, so where did they get this insane idea? They got it from Facebook. And, and so as long as, you know, social media continues to have a free reign to put out the most insane, untrue stuff without any liability, because as you well know, and you've been as much a critic of these social media companies as I have, they you can't sue Facebook. There's nothing you can do to stop them from publishing truth. You notice when Dominion voting machines sued Newsmax and ONN and Fox, they immediately came out with these statements saying, we're sorry, we didn't mean to say this stuff. It was obviously untrue. But you've never gotten that kind of apology from Facebook or YouTube. I, I take that. but um, and, and, and that was, of course, the, the core of your last book. But when I talked to Ron Brownstein about this same issue of culture and democratization, he was more hopeful about the power of a democratized media. Sure, Facebook's full of lies, but it also offers the young generation a platform to do and say and create anything they want. Can this democratized media result in a new early 60s, a new Dylan, a new Springsteen, a new The Band, a new Scorsese, a new Vendors? I would hope so. I mean, I, just look at what two films from the Oscars this year that were nominated for Best Picture. One was Nomadland, and the other was uh, Judas and the Black Messiah. Those are both, I would argue, very radical films. They are a critique of American society at its deepest, and they're done with love, and they're done with passion, and they're done by young filmmakers who were not in the club at all of a young Chinese American woman and a young black director. And 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 in, and, in, and just uh, uh, just to remind everyone that Nomadland was was also originally a book written by Jesse Broder, who's been on our show. So it came out of another radical tradition of exposing the inequalities in American society. Right. So I mean, it seems to me that the cultural vanguard still exists. Yes, does it get buried under the Marvel, you know, Disneyfication of, of culture? 
of course it does. But strangely enough, you know, when all the, the theaters were closed, all of a sudden there was a kind of window for this more uh, indie films and maybe indie music to to find its audience. And th this is this is hopeful. And so, look, I, I am incredibly optimistic. I believe that uh, America is on its way back. I believe that, for instance, the live music business is going to return with such power in in the fall that you're going to be shocked. Um, and and you know, people, if you own, if you look at your own credit card statement, you realize that over the last twelve months, you spent a lot less money than you did the twelve months before. And you've saved that money, and that's a good thing. And but some of that money you're going to spend now, and that will some of that will be spent on art and entertainment and services and other things. So that's for me a great thing. I think America will be back if it can. I mean, we all would, of course, love to to rediscover another Bob Dylan, but perhaps even more appropriately, and this was my favorite anecdote from uh, the book. If we can find another Johnny Cash, this was, uh, and I'm quoting you from again from the book, Dylan had walked off stage. He'd refused to perform after he got booed for shifting from acoustic um, for, from acoustic to electric. Uh, and, and I'm quoting you here. Johnny Cash wandered out of the art. And this was what, in, uh, in Newport in, 20, in 1965? 1965. Johnny Cash wandered out of the artist tent holding an acoustic guitar. For a moment, he watched the triangular drama of Peter, Bob, and the crowd. He moved over to Bob and handed him the guitar. Play, us, play them a song, son, he said. Where are we going to get another Johnny Cash? Uh, Jason Isabel. <laughs> He's already there. I mean, look. I'm, you have an I'm answer for you. everything. You're a, you are the true American optimist. <laughs> I am. I am an optimist. Okay, final question. Uh, here we have you and your family uh, with your, your three kids who are now grown up. Not only were you a rock and roll man, but a very dedicated father and family man. If there's one work of art, one movie, one song, one incident from your life that you would like your family, your kids to see or listen or watch that would somehow summarize the magic years, what would it be? Um, it might be the final song of the last waltz. Oh my God. Brilliant. I shall be released. Bob Dylan, you know, Joni Mitchell, the band, Neil Young, Van Morrison, all singing Bob Dylan's I shall be released, which to me is one of the great songs of the 21st century or the 20th century. Well, I'm going to release you, but I'm going to go back and watch The Last Waltz for about the 10th time. Another a remarkable piece of work, which Taplin somehow managed to involve himself in, the cultural zelig of the last 30 years, out with a wonderful new book, The Magic Years, Scenes from a Rock and Roll Life. John, keep young, forever young, and we'll have you back on the show to talk about our reinvention of America. As always, an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Andrew, it's always fun.